All right, why don't you uh, bow with me and let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, one of the things that's probably most touching for us about our My Story videos are, um, are the fact that that though ultimately they're leading us to relationship with you, as people talk about their relationship with you, we're amazed, Lord, at how you use so many human relationships in the process. So as we even hear Adele's story about just uh, how a gal invited her to church and introduced her to you, and now she's pouring into other people through that Images of Beauty ministry. And, Lord, it's just amazing how you, you use relationships to build your kingdom and ultimately to point us to you. And so, Father, that's what we want to talk about um, starting today and over the next few weeks into the Christmas season here at our church. And so as we use your word as our source of truth, as our source of knowledge about you and each other, we pray that you would guide us, give us wisdom. May we understand it rightly, and may we apply it diligently. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I hinted to in my prayer, we are starting a new series today on relationships. Relationships. And I think the whole thing is best summed up by Scott Stixell, who once wrote this. Look up here on the screen. He said, life is relationships, and the rest is just details. Life is relationships, and the rest is just details. And when you think about it, folks, he's right. Uh, that we are made by God to be relational beings relating to Him and to each other, even to ourselves. And when you boil it right down, the most meaningful times in life are some way are in some way connected to this idea of relationship. Uh, our wedding day, the birth of a child, a graduation ceremony, our favorite vacation, a special gift, a spiritual conversion or a reawakening, even a funeral or some kind of loss. Think of the most meaningful and significant times in your life, the times when you were most deeply moved and touched. And I'll bet that in some way there was some kind of relational activity going on in and around it. Life is just relation. Life is relationship. The rest is just details. And let's also be honest, however, about the flip side of this. And that is, as much as relationships are needed and wonderful, they're also really hard. Give me a head nod that we understand that, right? They are really, really hard. In fact, they're just downright messy. And we all know that as much as relationships can be meaningful, they're also the source of conflict, hurt, disappointment, pain, heartache, frustration, irritation, annoyance. In short, again, as Giaconelli said before he died, Mike Giaconelli, they're just messy. It's like the married couple who was celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary, and at the party, everybody wanted to know how they managed to stay married so long in today's day and age. And the husband responded and said, well, when we were first married, we came to an agreement that I would make all the major decisions and that my wife would make all the minor decisions. To which the wife said, yeah, and in the 60 years we've been married, we've never needed to make a major decision. <laughs> and, and as much as we laugh at that, some of us sit here and think, if only it were that easy, amen? Because it's not that easy. And any of us who have been married or tried relationships of any sort know that they're really hard, yet we all need them. It was relationships that gave us that famous phrase that we're all familiar with, you can't live with them, and let's finish it, you can't live without them. That's relationships in our world. And so we thought it'd be a really good idea here at Scottsdale Bible Church as we approach the Christmas holidays with all of the busyness of interaction with friends and families, co-workers and neighbors to take a look at this whole idea of relationships. 
And we have a theme verse for this series, and I think you're going to like it. A verse that's kind of going to carry us through the next five weeks. It's one that many of you have probably heard. It's found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Look up here on the screen. It says this. It says, And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I love this passage. It is pregnant with meaning. Don't miss, it says, let us consider. Let us consider. And that's what we're going to do in this series. Let us think deeply and ponder how we can spur one another on in our relational base to love and to good works with each other. It's fascinating. That little phrase, let us consider there, in the original language that the Bible is written in, means to consider and observe something to the point of discovery. And so what is it that we want to consider and observe to the point of discovery? Simply how our relationships can become the kind that God designed us to have. How we can end at the goal of love and good works. That's what we're going to be exploring, considering in this series. And in considering these things over the next five weeks, we're going to be sharing with you five key biblical components that make relationships work. Five key aspects that the Bible gives us of any good and godly relationship. I'm going to lead off today by talking to you guys about intentionality. Daryl, next week, is going to be talking to us about listening. And then after that, which, by the way, I thought would be really interesting to have Daryl talk to us about listening. Enough said on that. And then after that... Don't tell them I said that. And after that, we're going to talk about how to speak to each other in life-giving ways. Then we're going to talk about how to handle conflict. And finally, we're going to end by talking about commitment and the glue that commitment plays in relationships. Five things that the Bible talks about all the time that will help our relationships with each other. And before we dive into the first one, let me give you one huge caution here. And this is really important. And that is, please don't treat these five things as techniques on how to relate better. Please don't do that. Uh, These are not techniques. If you want to, you can go to Amazon.com and type in the word relationships, and it will give you, I did it this week, exactly 781,590 books on relationships. We are like a relationship-obsessed culture. 780-plus thousand books on relationships. And though I certainly haven't read all of them, I've read a lot of them over the years because my life is relationally based as a pastor. And a lot of them in our culture today, our our formula-driven, tell-you-how-to-do-it-get-it-right culture, are all about techniques. The only problem is, is that try to treat relationship like you do other techniques in your life, like, say, learning a computer, you know, where you pull the menu down here and you move the mouse over here, and if it doesn't work, you try to reboot and all that stuff. At best, you're going to keep your relationship shallow, and at worst, you're going to kill them. Because, you see, relationships are not computers. They're not, they require techniques in how to operate them. Don't miss this. Relationships are our organic entities. They're more like plants. That's what they are. That's what God says. To be nurtured and watered and to be grown and allow process to take over. As we're going to see with some intentionality, but, but they're to be cared for and nurtured. They're not techniques to be mastered. And so the things that you and I are going to talk about over the next few weeks, we're going to be interested more in broad sweeps of understanding and activity that are very practical in of themselves, but leave lots of room for you and God to apply in your personal setting. Okay? Good. So with this said, let me share with you the first component of a meaningful, God-infused relationship. And it's one that many people miss. 
in our constantly moving, always on the go society. And it's called the principle of intentionality. Intentionality. Or to put it in sentence form, look up here on the screen, relationships don't happen by accident, they happen on purpose. So as I say quite often, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. That relationships, by and large, are not going to happen on accident or by accident. They happen on purpose. So check this out. What we have found is that relationships that go deep and touch the soul almost always do so because one or more people took responsibility, added initiative, and then in multiple ways moved intentionally toward the center of another person's life and soul. It's a principle of intentionality. Gary Smalley is a very popular Christian author and counselor whom I'm told has had some history here at Scottsdale Bible Church. And a few years ago, before I came here as your senior pastor, I was reading a book around 2004 that he just came out with called The DNA of Relationships. And it's a book that has some pretty good principles on how to have better relationships from a man who obviously has spent a lot of time helping people relate. And the main gist of the book is that God has hardwired into every human being three DNA-like realities, hence the DNA of relationships. Three things that God has put in every human being that demands healthy relationships. He says, one, you're made for relationships. That's a given. Two, you're made with the capacity to choose. And three, you're made with the responsibility for, to take responsibility for yourself. Interesting. Three very simple things that Smalley sets out very early on in the book and then just fleshes it out throughout the whole thing that he calls the DNA of our relational base. The fact that we are made for relationships, that we are made with the capacity to choose, that we're made to take responsibility for yourself. And folks, I simply got to ask you, do you get the sense of intentionality here? Do you? Relationships, choice, responsibility. I mean, relationships take intentionality. They happen on purpose or they're probably not going to happen at all. And so don't miss this. Without intentionality, in the way that you approach your relationships, and you probably won't go all that deep or find that much joy and meaning in them. In fact, the opposite will happen. If you just wait and hope that they will happen by accident, like many people seem to do, chances are they won't. And it will probably produce shallowness at best and alienation or even loneliness at worst. There's a true story that came out five years ago in McLean's Magazine, which is Canada's equivalent of Time Magazine. Uh, And I want to read you the first part of the story, and then I'll fill in the rest of the gap so I won't read the whole thing to you. But this is very, very interesting. It was called a high-tech ghost story. It says, "On on, on one November day in 2002, Jim Sulkers, a 53-year-old retired municipal worker from Winnipeg, climbed into bed, pulled the covers up, and died. Over the next 20-odd months, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Janet Jackson exposed herself at the Super Bowl, and Canadians, with some reluctance, elected Paul Martin. But tragically, it wasn't until August 25, 2004, toward the end of the Athens Summer Olympics, that somebody finally thought to look in on Jim Salkers. By the time the police, alerted finally by concerned relatives, climbed through the window of his second-story condo in the posh River Heights neighborhood, Sulker's body was in a mummified state. Everything else in his tiny one-bedroom apartment was intact, although the food in his fridge was spoiled and his wall calendar was two years out of date. So let that sink in a minute. A a guy died of of natural causes. He was only 53, but it was actually multiple sclerosis that he died of. And 
Two years went by, and nobody knew that he was dead at all, even his neighbors living in the next apartment. So as you can imagine, the police were were like, how could this happen? So they started to investigate. They found a few things. They found first that this guy was obviously a reclusive. He wasn't very friendly with his neighbors. He was estranged from most, if not all, of his family. He just lived a very reclusive, I-don't-need-people kind of lifestyle. The second thing they found, however, is that he had a medical condition, very rare, that prevented his body from decomposing. And so when they found him in a mummified state, it was because his body did not decompose like other bodies, therefore it didn't give off any odor, therefore people didn't smell anything. But the third thing that they found in the investigation that was probably most unique was simply the fact that what really added to this delay was technology, or more specifically, automated banking. You see, he was on a disability pension because of his multiple sclerosis, and he had his disability pension automatically put into his bank account every month, and then he paid all of his bills online automatically so that all money would be taken out each month. So for two years after he was dead, money went in each month, and then money came out each month, paying just like he was alive. And because of this, and the fact that he was reclusive, and the fact that his body didn't decompose, for two years he laid there in his apartment, and nobody knew that he was dead. Uh, Terrence Moran is a professor of media ecology at New York University. And look up here on the screen. This is what he said in response to this when they interviewed him. He said, this man's life was extended for two years by the technology he used. And then he said this. He said, what you have here is a lack of community. What you have here is a lack of community. And boy, I think he nailed it, don't you? That it's possible in our high-tech society and culture today, under rare circumstances, with six billion people on this planet, to actually die and have nobody know. To not have anybody around you know. And though technology now makes that even more possible, what it really shows us more than anything is a lack of community that can exist even in our very busy, lots of people kind of world. That we weren't meant to be live isolated and alone. And that without some intentionality, especially in our day and age, you just might live isolated and alone. It's possible. Jim Salker shows us this. And so the call that I think you and I need to hear today is this call to intentionality when it comes to the relationships around us. Because you might say, well, I'm not Jim Salkers. I'm not going to die and have everybody notice for two years. But the reality is many of us are living awfully separated, isolated, at least internally when it comes to relationships, lives from those around us. And only intentionality is going to be the thing that brings us back. I want to share with you a passage from the Bible. Some of you are saying, finally, the Bible. Uh, it's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses... F- I know how you church people think, by the way. I'm one of you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 16. This is going to be our theme verse for intentionality for the rest of our time today, but we're going to weave in lots of stuff from Jesus' life because Jesus is going to show us a lot about intentionality here. But Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 16, look up here on the screen. This is our, our verse that talks to us about intentionality. It says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Wow. So string all this together. Be careful, be wise, make the best use of your time. And contained in here is the recipe for relational intentionality. 
Three things I want us to wrap up with here this morning in our time remaining. Three things that this passage is telling us. Three kinds of intentionality, if you will, that you and I can incorporate into our lives that will do nothing but help us be more intentional in our relationships. And the first thing you'll want to notice here is what I'm going to label the intentionality of time. It's the most obvious one here, the intentionality of time. It says in verse 16, making the best use of the time. Interesting phrase, best use of the time. I like actually how the New International Version says it. It translates this by saying, making the most of every opportunity. This phrase literally means an occasion, a season of opportunity. Get this, it connotes a period of time with an emphasis on opportunity during that time. And so it's simply saying to be very intentional with the time that you're given. Realize that time is a precious commodity and that it's very powerful when it's used on someone or something else. And so use it wisely, make the most of it, be intentional with it. And folks, what the Bible tells us is the most wise way to use your time when it comes to relationships is twofold. You ready for this? Look up here on the screen. And that is to give plenty of quantity time to them, to the relationships that matter most. And then to prioritize, prioritize, reprioritize those same relationships that matter most. Jesus is going to show us this in just a second here. To give plenty of quantity time to your relationships. And then secondly, to prioritize them above all else. And you will be intentional with your time. You know, I mentioned twice here that Jesus uh, is going to model this for us. and 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 I just love how he does this in such a powerful way. I need you to think about Jesus' life with me for a minute. Um, Jesus was obviously the incarnate Son of God who had a life mission to demonstrate himself as the Son of God by performing lots of miracles all throughout the Holy Land and then teaching people throughout the Holy Land about the kingdom of God, which has been recorded for us in the Bible. And then Jesus' life mission obviously included dying on a wooden cross as a substitute for the sins of humankind which I think we'd all agree is like a much bigger and more global task than the busiest Donald Trump business type person alive today, right? I mean, a pretty busy life Jesus lived. And yet when it came to his closest relationships, what did Jesus do? He gave plenty of quantity time to them and he prioritized them over and over again. Get this, even in the midst of all the people demands that occurred around him. You know, sometimes when people think of Jesus' life, they think he was just sort of this nomadic wanderer who had all this margin in his life. You don't get that picture in the Gospels. Not at all. I mean, in the New Testament, Jesus had constant demands on his time. He had crowds pushing in on him, thousands following him everywhere he went, people cutting holes in roofs in houses to get the sick in front of him, people clawing just to get a touch of his garment to be healed, thousands running around huge lakes just to get to the other side before he did so they could be with him again, wealthy and successful people sending servants and emissaries to invite Jesus to their home for a miracle or two, I mean, if this happened today, he'd be front and center on the front page of the newspaper. The E! channel would be going nuts over Jesus. It's just true. So in first century language, they paint a picture of Jesus being very, very, very busy with the demands on his time. And yet it's interesting because when you then look closely at the Gospels, they also paint a picture, however, of a man who ruthlessly prioritized his personal relationships and gave plenty of quantity time to them. Isn't that interesting? That in the midst of all the busyness, Jesus chose 12 men and a few others like Lazarus and Mary and Martha 
and he prioritized them in such life-giving ways, it's all over the place. And let me string some verses together to show you this. You're going to see this in black and white right now. Um, Very early on in his ministry, right at the beginning of it, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, and Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So right from the get-go, he gets alone with his disciples. And then as his popularity begins to increase, it says in John 3, verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them. Interesting. And then as Jesus goes on in his very busy public life, it says later in Luke 9, 18, now it happened that, that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. So he's praying alone, the disciples with him. And as we move through the gospel accounts further, you have that famous transfiguration event on the mountain that many of us are familiar with. So it says in Matthew 17, 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them high up a mountain by themselves. And then as things begin to heat up and he was nearing his arrest and his trial, it says in John eleven fifty four, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness, and there he stayed with his disciples. And as he then headed toward Jerusalem in the final weeks of his life, it says in Matthew 20, verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And then, as if all this were not enough, even the final few days of his life, the Scriptures make clear in Mark 14, 32 and 33, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray, and he took with him Peter and James and John. I mean, it's like all over the place, folks. This pattern of intentionality, this pattern where Jesus prioritizes certain key relationships very intentionally, in the midst of his extremely busy life, in the midst of his grand goal as the incarnate Son of God to die on a cross for our sins. And and the point is, in this very simple observation, is that if you and I are ever going to have the kind of relationships that go deep, whether it be with our spouse, our kids, our grandkids, the folks in our small group at church, our friends, our co-workers, whatever, it's only going to be because we debunk the ridiculous myths propagated by our culture that say relationships just happen by accident or I can get away with quality time over and against quantity time. I'm here to tell you those are lies from a fast-paced, shallow culture that doesn't understand relationships. Because Jesus shows us the opposite. That without intentionality and without honoring this value of quantity time, you will not have the kind of relationships that your soul longs for. It's the DNA, if you will, of relationships. It's how God has made things. Time intentionality. Specifically, time intentionality that honors quantity time and ruthless priorities. It's the first component to building any meaningful relationship. I'm going to confess to you here in just a minute some of my uh, glaring shortcomings when it comes to relationships. And for those of you who know me, it probably won't surprise you. But before I do that, let me share with you um, just one area where God over 21 years has really honed and, and molded me into a fairly healthy way of relating right now. And it has to do with this idea of time intentionality. Maybe you can imagine the ministry can be just absolutely time-consuming, never-ending. I mean, if you can't learn to go to bed with unmet needs in your church, you'll, you'll just, you'll never make it as a pastor. But also, ministry, as you can imagine, really threatens family life because you constantly have a choice between church and home, church and home, church and home, and church, as we just established, is never-ending. 
But early on in the ministry, due to God's grace and some wonderful intervention by pastors who mentored me, I learned this value that we're talking about here of time intentionality. And I early on just carved things into my very busy schedule that would make sure that my family always gets the best of me. So, for instance, right now here in Scottsdale, I make sure that I obviously have devotions with the Lord so I'm strong in my spiritual life with Him. I, I combine my working out or hiking five to six days a week with my kids. So I always try to make sure that if they're out of school or whatever, that I'm, I'm constantly with the kids if I'm working out. Paul and I work out three, four days a week together. My wife and I have regular times together. For the first 18 years of our marriage, before she worked full-time, we had um, a regular date night and a regular date lunch every single week. We just carved that into our schedule. I'm home an average of four or five nights a week. One of those nights, I take my daughter Abby food shopping with me because Kim hates to food shop, so I do the food shopping with Abby and the family. It's our date. It's a blast. We've seen some of you at Walmart. Hello. And then on, um, and, and then on noon by Sunday... I'm sorry, noon by Saturday, I always try to be done with my message so that my family gets a good half day of me Saturday, and then Monday's my day off. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I look at all the things I've carved into my schedule very intentionally to make sure that my family gets the best of me, and, and some of you are thinking, gosh, I didn't realize you were such a slacker. And yet what's interesting is, is nobody ever accuses me of that. I still have 60 hours a week. You can do the math uh, to, to give to the church, and I try to work very hard and very smart with my hours here, it's just that I realize I only have so long, and so do you, with your kids, and now with your grandkids, and with the, the people God has put into your life that matters. And one of the things I'm so grateful for, for Scottsdale Bible, and I, I talked more in the last service about this, is how our elders, who are also extremely busy men, model this as well, and that they say for the staff that they want us to have a priority of quantity time with our families, prioritizing that, and even the other relationships that matter. And so we put a question up here on the screen for you, and it's a really good question. And that is, in, one spe- in what specific ways do you, do you, add time and intentionality to your most important relationships? I just gave you my short list of things that I do to carve space into my schedule to make sure that they get the bill that they need. Uh, what's your list? Think about that. That's a good thing for you to do as you add intentionality to your life. Now, more quickly, let me share with you two other kinds of intentionality that the Bible, and specifically Ephesians 5, verses 14 and 15, talk about. And so the second kind, and this is going to be new for some of us, is called the intentionality of focus. The intentionality of focus. Now this is an interesting one. Bear with me here, because it's one that brings home to us that though time intentionality is very important as a starting place in going deeper with those we love, It's certainly not the be-all and end-all when it comes to intentionality because intentionality also involves doing something when we're with people, and it's all about focus. Or maybe look at it this way. Time intentionality will cause you to show up in somebody's life and stay a while, but it's the intentionality of focus that will begin to connect you more deeply with the person that you're with. And you're saying, what's that about? Well, again, look at Ephesians 5, verse 15. Very interesting how it says it. It says, look carefully then, and then it says how you walk. Look carefully then, and then focus on those three little words, how you walk. It's interesting, that word walk in the original language literally means to tread around and to be occupied with something. It carries with it a sense that you're walking in such a way that you're focused. 
So if any of you have ever been out hiking or walking on unstable ground, you know that as you walk on that ground, you've got to be kind of focused about where you put your feet and how you, how you step. Or, or say you're walking in such a way that you're receiving directions from somebody else, and they said go right here and left here and right here. You've got to be focused so that you go right here and left here and right here. That's what this phrase means here when it says be careful how you walk. It's basically saying walk in such a way that you have a focus and intentionality in how you walk. And so when it comes to relationships, it's simply revealing to us that not only do we need to carve out time to be with others, but as we carve out that time, make sure that we're intentional about the focus that we have with others. And I think that the greatest practical application to this, and again, I'm going to show you from Jesus' life here in just a minute how he shows us this, and this is a great challenge to you and me, is simply this, that we focus by being present when we are present with others. Think about that. Being present when we are present with others, that's the intentionality of focus. And though I'm going to talk to you about some other things in the coming weeks here, about how we can also focus, things like listening and sharing and conflict resolution and commitment, for today's purposes, what I simply want you to see is that God's Word calls us to a level of focus in our most important relationships in which when we are relationally present, or when we are physically present with them, we are also relationally present with them. And that's the intentionality of focus, to make sure that we're present when we're present. Probably about 15 years ago, when I first started thinking more deeply about the relationships around me, um, I was regularly um, boasting to anybody that would listen about how good of a multitasker I was. Do you remember when that phrase multitasking came up? And, and, and it, came, it was like a computer thing, right? You know, because Windows multitasking and all this. And, and so, uh, you know, years ago when that came out, I, I latched onto that term. And everybody I'd meet, you know, I'd say, you know, let me tell you how good I am. I'm a really good multitasker, all these things. And I had a really good friend that was a therapist in private practice, and he used to give me free advice. That's the way to do it, by the way, is just have a good therapist and private practice friend and take him out for, what, a buck 85 cup of coffee, and you're golden. So we were out for a buck 85 cup of coffee, and I, and I was boasting to him about what a great multitasker I was. And, you know, therapists are great because they, they, they don't, they're not directive. Like pastors are directive. We say, well, that's stupid or something like that, you know. And therapists, they were taught not to do that in therapy school. And so what they do is that they will reflect back to you, right, what you hear. And then they'll gently shove something in there. So I'm bragging about being a multitasker. And he looks at me and he says, um, he says well, you know, I, I feel really bad for the relationships around you. I said, what, what do you mean? I walked right into it. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, he said, you know, it just seems to me that if you're so good at multitasking that at any one point, any relationship that you're in is only getting about 25% of you. He said, because you're already multitasking and you're probably thinking about what needs to be done 10 minutes from now and what you just did. And so you're all over the place because you're a really good multitasker. But I just wonder how it feels to be your wife. Ooh. Or how it feels to be one of your children or how it feels to be one of the sheep in your church. I, I just want, I'm like, shut up. I'm like, yeah, how it feels. You know, I'm like going, oh my gosh, you know. And I stopped hanging around with therapists about 15 years ago. No, I didn't. Actually, I love hanging around. They're, they're really challenging to me. But I, 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 I tell you, I turned a corner 15 years ago and I stopped bragging about multitasking and I started confessing multitasking. And I don't know about you, but I find that many of us have real trouble with this point, don't we, of being present when we're present because we're just so scatterbrained. We are so good at doing all these things at once. And I think my therapist friend was right that, that, that when you multitask in the realm of relationships, remember I said don't treat these as techniques? That's why, because if you multitask in the realm of relationships, 
You're going to come out with shallow at best. You're going to kill it at worst. I, I find I still struggle with that today. I want to inspire you from uh, Jesus' life here. Look at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. This is one of those accounts of Jesus' life where, where, where people like read it and they go, I don't get it, and then they move on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, people do that in the Bible. Like, they read it in their devotional life, and they go, well, this is goofy, and then they just move on. This is one of those stories, but let, let's, let's parse it out here a minute, because I think it's got some really good truth for us here. Let me read it to you. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And then the story ends. Uh, and again, people read this story and they go, what, spitting in some guy's eyes? He wasn't healed, like, right away. He walks him out of the city, like, I don't get it, and, and they move on. Uh, what do you think's going on in this story here? Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here that commentators, Bible experts tend to point out, but, 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 but let's just sort of break this down. In the midst of Jesus' very busy life, which I already established, one of the first things I need you to notice is that he was not too busy to focus intently on a man in need. In other words, this is who God brought into his life at that moment. And Jesus laser beam focuses on him. And we know that Jesus was practicing the intentionality of focus here because he does some unusual things. He takes this blind man by the hand, which obviously he would need to because he's blind, but he walks him outside of the village. Now, what's that about? Well, most Bible experts just kind of say there, they don't know any more than you and I know, really, but they walked him out of the village because Jesus wanted to get him away from the rat race, from all the other stuff, from all the other things. And he, he wanted to just get him alone so that they could focus together. And then in continuing that idea of focus, Jesus, I mean, I don't know why, he spits in his eyes, and then he lays his hands on him. Again, what most Bible experts point out is that this has to do with touch. Again, life is an, is an organic entity, not an artificial entity, and so Jesus spent a lot of time touching people and, and being physical with them. And in this case, he, he, he spits in his eyes and exchanges fluids, and he touches him, and, and, and he just, he's pouring into this man. He's the Son of God. He can do that doesn't work right away and so he asks him a probing question he's dialoguing relating to this man do you see anything and man says i see people looking like trees and things like that and that are walking and so he he then does further touch and he lays his hands upon this man's eyes and gives more focused attention and then the man is healed and again keeping this idea of focus jesus gives him parting instruction as to what he wants to happen now because he's kind of protecting his his role as the Son of God and how God was going to reveal this to the rest of the culture around there. And you walk away from the story going, at the very least, maybe we don't get all of it, but at the very least, Jesus was extremely focused on this man. Do you see that there? No multitasking. Uh, no thinking about what's going to happen next or what just came. Uh, he's present when he's present there. He's absolutely present in the moment. It's the intentionality of focus that Jesus models for us and challenges us to here. My, uh, my, my wife, Kim, who many of you don't know because she's an introvert and she prefers to be behind the scenes, and again, she's the homemaker in our family and, and, and plays a lot of those roles, uh, has received a lot of heat as of late from my three teenage kids because as they get older, um, she doesn't multitask and she tends to be just very focused in the moment. Uh, my wife has a, an unusual gift, I find, in which um, she is able to give people 
100% of her at any one moment. I mean, it's really uncanny. Um, she is just very, very good, if you have her attention, at being very present in the moment with you. And as you can imagine, having a strength or a gift like that, though very, very Jesus-like, can also bring with it a lot of frustration for people around you. So, for instance, my wife, if she hears a cell phone ringing, but if she's doing something else, will not pick up the cell phone. And she probably won't check the messages. Uh, My wife, if she is watching uh, some TV show, her favorite one right now is NCIS, if she's watching that, the brownies will be burnt. And uh, because she's watching the TV show. And uh, if my wife is doing something now, unless I try to remind her, hey, honey, you know, you got this event right now that she'll, she'll many times will forget. We've tried calendars, we've tried everything. And as you can imagine, that can be frustrating for three teenagers who are trying to depend on her for car rides and things like that. Yet I, after 21 years of marriage, don't want to change her an ounce. I want to help her at times, but I don't want to change her at all. Because though those things used to drive me nuts too in the early days, I've now learned to realize that my wife has an ability and a gift that I salivate after, that have made the relationships in her life so rich and so meaningful because she listens so intently and she speaks so clearly and she's there 100% when you're having conflict and can give attention to it and she has a commitment in the moment like very few I've ever seen. And I live every day with the, the living challenge of what it might mean to have the intentionality of focus. And here's the good news. Is it for those of us who are like quintessential multitaskers? We can learn to be more like Jesus. We can be, learn to be more like my wife if we'll but add some intentionality to it. Learning to get more focused, to discipline our mind and our heart to be present when we're present. Are you starting to see, folks, the power of intentionality here? Relationships don't happen on accident. They happen on purpose. And they happen on purpose when you apply the intentionality of time and the intentionality of focus. And lastly, let's just wrap up with this, what I call the intentionality of will. The intentionality of will. Look one last time at Ephesians 5, verse 15, and you're going to see this. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, interesting, but as wise. As wise. Again, this is one of those passages where we see that and we say, yeah, I better walk wisely. But then we don't really think about what that means. So what does it mean to walk wisely? Most of you have been taught over the church the definition of biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is defined as practical knowledge, right? So you've got knowledge that's mainly conceptual in nature. Wisdom is taking that knowledge and applying it, knowing what to do in life. And so wisdom, don't miss this, always involves the will. You've got your heart, you've got your emotions, you've got your spirit... But only your will is that which gets you in motion in your life. And it's wisdom that does that. It's applied or practical knowledge. Jesus taught us this. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength, your will. And so simply put, a huge part of intentionality is simply asserting one's will and prioritizing relationship over and against all else in life. And the thought I want to leave you on is simply the fact that there are times in life what Bill Hybels calls defining moments where you and I have to assert our will by drawing a line in the sand and making this day the day that we're going to start living in a different way. And life is filled with small and few big defining moments where we draw that line in the sand and with the intentionality of will say, I'm no longer going to live like this, I'm going to live like this 
this. Your conversion to Christianity, if you've had one, was probably one of those big defining moments where you decided no longer you're going to live without God, but you're going to live with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. I find that many marriages that become healed after very long times of being in the dumps have a defining moment to them where somebody turned the corner. We saw that with Phil and Tina a few weeks ago in one of our My Stories, where Phil just drew the line in the sand. He turned the corner with an intentionality of his will to walk with God and to honor his spouse. I find that parents that aren't getting along with their teens or have been engaging in not-so-graceful parenting over the years eventually have a moment in time where God breaks through and says, Grace, grace, and the parent starts to relate in a different way. You get the picture. Life is filled with lots of different defining moments where we have an intentionality of will. And here's my point, is that maybe for some of you, this series that we're in right now is going to take some intentionality of will, and it just might even become a defining moment for you in the relationships that matter most around you. I started off in my explanation of this series noting that Christmas is a time where, I said this last week, where we either have awesome life-giving relationships and we forge memories that are just great between now and the time we die, or, because it's a stressful time of year, it can strain relationships, especially family ones, in which it's like really hard uh, to get through this time of year. And what we're going to try to do here at Scottsdale Bible Church is help you, especially those of you who need to focus on some of your relationships, do so in a God-honoring way. That's why we're going to talk about listening and speaking and conflict and commitment. But it all begins with intentionality. And it begins with an intentionality of your will. So here's your homework. And you're saying you're kidding. Homework? I don't do it very often. But I want to give you just a little, little piece of homework that just might be helpful for you in getting the most mileage out of this look over the next month here at, our, at your church. And the homework is simply this. I dare you, don't you love it when I say that? I dare you to identify one or two key relationships in your life that matter most right now and that you want to see go the next step between now and, say, the new year. I dare you to write those names down, just one or two names, and begin praying that God will take you the next step in those relationships or that relationship. It might be a spouse. It might be a kid. It might be your best friend. It might be a work associate. It might be a neighbor. It might be somebody else here at the church. Who knows what it is? But, but, but write that name down. Maybe on your bulletin right now or when you get home if you don't want any of those to see it. And begin focusing intentionally on that relationship. Ask God to enter in in such a way that he might take you the next step. Then apply the things we're going to talk about and hang on for the ride. Because you just might have one of those defining moments where God enters in and takes you the next step in that. And that's what we're praying for in our church at this time. Why don't you bow with me? Father, I thank you that uh, there's not one person, not one person in this worship center here this morning that is beyond your scope, your grace, and your activity in their lives. And so, Father, I pray that as you care about all the relationships that we've been thinking about each of us individually here this morning, um, that, God, we might have the courage to identify and focus on just one or two, and in an intentional way, with our time and with our focus and with our will, begin pouring more into them. God, I think of all the marriages that have just gotten a little bit blasé, if not sour, over the years. I think of relationships with one's children in which a parent longs for some deeper intimacy and friendship and communication. Lord, I think of friendships that maybe hit some hard times and 
now. There's a cordial hello, but not much depth. Father, I think of neighbors that we've wanted to reach out to, co-workers that we've been longing to pour more into relation. Lord, there's just so many scenarios. May we identify one or two. And God, as we lift those up to you, as we apply the principles that we've learned today and that we are going to learn, may you enter in, do what only you can do. And Lord, if I know you're right, may there be some defining moments then too, some real lines in the sand that get drawn over the next month where people look back and they say, it was Christmas 2009 that the Lord did that. And so God, we thank you that you are active in our lives, that you love us, and that your grace is constantly with us. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.